It's Jesus talking. You've heard that it was said in the, to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, which is like idiot, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still with him on the way. Or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer. You may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, don't break your oath, but keep the oaths you've made to the Lord. But I tell you, don't swear at all, either by heaven for it's God's throne, or by the earth for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem for it's the city of the great king. And don't swear by your head, for you can't make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that. And here's our verse. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So what I want us to, we're going to use that as our umbrella today. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And the first thing I want you to do is I want you to think about how that hits you. That's a command from Jesus. He's telling us to be perfect. And how does that, not up here, how does that hit you kind of in your gut? Is your response to that, I'm crushed. I, I don't, I can't. It's not working. I'm just making it through my day and the idea that I'm supposed to be perfect. It's just not happening for me. That's just a weight that I can't bear to carry. Some see it as a challenge. Jesus wouldn't ask us. He wouldn't tell us to do something that we were incapable of doing. So therefore, if he says, be perfect, I can be perfect. And I'm going to look at the areas of my life where I'm not a 10 out of 10. And I'm going to go after those. And I'm going to make a plan. And here's the chart. And I'm starting tomorrow. And that type of attitude for some of us. We see that as a challenge that we're going to then attack with all good intentions and all of that type. For some of us, we just dismiss it. We say, I'm a child of God, I'm saved by grace, and it really doesn't matter. He doesn't care about my my performance, he's not really serious. It doesn't matter, it doesn't affect anything, and so I'm just going to kind of let that roll off of me. And it depends, kind of different people hit that different ways. We're about to get, the Sermon on the Mount up to this point has been fairly generalized, and it's about to get very specific and very behavior specific. 
There's a whole lot of things Jesus is about to say, do this and don't do this. And when you do this, don't just do it, but do it this way. Very specific. And for some of us, how we receive that is very, very important. Some of you, if, if you're not careful, you're going to leave here every Sunday crushed. Here's, a, here's some more stuff on my plate. Another place where I don't measure up, more work for me to do this week. Some of you are going to leave challenged. All right, this is where I'm going to, here's my assignment for the week. I'm going to grow in this area or that area. I'm going to change this thing and that. And for some of us, we're just going to dismiss it and say, I'm good. He doesn't, he's not, it's not to be taken seriously or it doesn't ultimately matter because I'm, I'm in. I'm saved and that's, this doesn't affect that one way or the other. I'd say probably two-thirds of the people in this room, I would say in the church in Marietta in general, probably two-thirds of the folks have a case of the shoulds. When you think about your relationship with God, it's this is what I should be doing. I should be praying or reading or going to church or in a small group, and I, these are the things I shouldn't be doing. I shouldn't be losing my temper or cussing so much or drinking so much or whatever that is. We have a case of the shoulds. We see our relationship with God like a ladder, and I'm going to climb up it based on these things that I should and should not do. And if that's how you approach your relationship with God, then what we're about to talk about is not going to be easy for you at all because it's just going to be piling on in some way. I don't think any of those, feeling crushed, feeling challenged, or even being slightly dismissive of what we're reading, I don't think any of those are helpful long term. Any of them can be good in a moment. Like it's good every now and again to feel crushed. It's good to say, you know what? God is holy, his standards are high, and I don't meet them because that pushes me back to his grace. It reminds me that I can't do this. That's what humility is. It's recognizing my need for him. I'm dependent upon him. I can't do what he's asking me to do ultimately. That's good to be there occasionally. It's not good to live there. It's good to be there occasionally. It's good every now and again to feel challenged. If God doesn't care about our behavior, then he spent a whole lot of time talking about something he doesn't care about. He cares about the choices that, he, that we make. He cares about our behavior. And every now and again, it's good to feel challenged. It's easy for us to get into ruts. It's easy for us to kind of settle for the status quo. And occasionally, we kind of need that kick in the pants that says, hey, listen, you're not, there, there's gap here between what God wants for you and where you're living, and you, you need to do some, you need to make some changes. It's actually, and it's good for us at times to say, it doesn't matter, my performance is not the issue here. I'm, I'm chosen, I'm dearly loved, and that's because God has said so. And I'm going to live in that identity and that reality. And I'm not going to worry about what I'm doing. All of those things at different times are helpful. All of those things can lead to some pretty big ditches if that's the only thing that we hold on to. And so as we get into the Sermon on the Mount, again, what the question I'm asking is how does it hit you, this idea of being perfect, because that will tell you how you're going to respond to everything that we're working through for the rest of the next few weeks well, also, to me, it will say this is the ditch that you're prone to falling into and that you need to be aware of. So what is this whole idea about being perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect? First, perfect does not mean flawless. and It doesn't. In the New Testament, perfect means whole, mature, complete, attaining to the purpose for which something was created, which is great for us. Jesus is not saying be sinless as your Father in Heaven is sinless or be flawless as your Father in Heaven is flawless. He's saying, I want you to um, live out the purpose for which you were created. If you look at Genesis 1 and 2, you see what that is. We were created in the image of God. Romans 8.29, we're predestined to be conformed into the image of Jesus. That's two different ways of saying the same thing. 
If you read Genesis 1 and 2, and you read Revelation 21 and 22, they sound alike. A lot of similarities. There's trees, there's gardens, there's rivers. Everything is good. Those are the only four chapters in the Bible without the presence of sin. Genesis 3 through Revelation 20, sin's in the midst of all of that. Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22, there is no sin. One, because sin hadn't entered the world, and the other, because sin has finally been dealt with. These bookends, that's the picture for us. God never scrapped the original plan. His desire for us is still, we're created in His image for meaningful work, for rest, and for open relationship with Him and one another. That's, that has been, is, and always will be His desire for us. So when, we, when you hear the word perfect, I want you to hear complete, whole, mature. I want you to hear image of God, image of Christ. That's what I want you thinking about. And as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, that's what you need to be thinking. Not here's a list of shoulds for me and shouldn'ts for me. That's not what this is about. That's actually about as far from what Jesus is doing as possible. That's a very little, that's a letter of the law approach that will kill us. What we want to say is spirit of the law. What is he trying to accomplish through what he's saying here? How does that help foster this idea of us becoming more like Jesus? That's the idea of being perfect. That's where this thing is headed. You don't need to hear this as another legalism. Matthew 15 says this. You don't have to flip. Uh, Jesus and his disciples are in a bit of a disagreement with the religious leaders because his disciples aren't washing their hands the right way. There's a very prescribed way of washing your hands and making sure everything is ritually clean and they're not following it. And so some guys say, hey, listen, why don't your guys wash their hands the way we all know you're supposed to wash your hands. And Jesus says that's not what makes you clean or unclean. It's not about the food that you eat or the way that you wash your hands. And later his disciples say, you've got to explain that. We don't get that. They've been raised in a religious tradition that said, prescribed everything very, um, they're very detail-oriented. Here's a, you don't cook a kid in your mother's milk for whatever reason. So you've got a, here's a set of pans for your meat. And here's a set of pans for your dairy. That way there's no way those two things cross. And here's how you wash your hands. And here's when you do it. And here's what you can eat. And all of those things make you clean in God's sight. That's what makes you good in his sight. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not it actually at all. And it's confusing for his disciples because it's going against the culture that they've been raised in. And this is what he says to them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. And these make a man unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what make a man unclean. But eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. It doesn't. Eating with unwashed hands makes you dirty. But it doesn't make you unclean at all. In God's sight, your heart is the issue. The guys Jesus is addressing in the Sermon on the Mount, they don't get it. They've been raised again in, a, in this understanding that what God cares about most is externals. That's what he's looking for. And if you get the externals right, then you're good. And if you mess the externals up, then you're not. And what Jesus is trying to say, you've missed it completely. That's not what I'm trying to do here at all. I'm trying to address your heart because that's where all of this stuff comes from. We live under the new covenant. 
And the reason we have a new covenant is because the old covenant didn't work. It was inadequate. If the old was fine, then God wouldn't have made a new. He made a new one because he was getting rid of the old one. And the old one was inadequate because it doesn't deal with the true issue. The old covenant deals just with with, uh, our hands. It just deals with what we do. It doesn't deal with our hearts, the source of all of these things. This is what Ezekiel 36 says about the new covenant. I will give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone. I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You see, Jesus says in that Matthew 15 that we looked at, it's what comes out of you that makes you unclean. And the promise of the new covenant is I'm going to fix that. I'm going to take out your old heart, which is the source of all of this stuff that makes you unclean. I'm going to give you a new one. And I'm not just going to give you a new heart. I'm going to put my spirit in you. And he will move you to keep my decrees. When you, as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, I don't want you to hear, this is a list of things for me to do. I want you to see two different things. One, this is what God is doing in you. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is what he's doing in you. When we looked at the Beatitudes, I said, you don't need to go after those things directly. This is, as you spend time with God, that's what he's going to make your heart like. He's going to cause you to hunger and thirst for righteousness because he does. And as you spend more time with him, you'll begin to desire the things that he desires. He'll cause you, this, this idea of being poor in spirit, recognizing your need for him. As you spend time with him, you'll rec- that, that will begin to happen. You don't have to shoot for those things directly. Actually doing that can be frustrating. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Those are identity statements. Those aren't necessarily things that I've got to go out tomorrow and say I'm going to be salt. It's already who I am as a follower of Jesus. These are the things that God is doing in me as I spend time with him. It won't be just that I don't kill people. It will be that I quit calling them morons. Like that's, That will happen in me over as I spend more time with him. It won't be just that I don't legally divorce my wife. I won't struggle with lust as much because he's, he's, he's changing my heart. And that's where all of this stuff comes from. So you need to take comfort in the fact the Sermon on the Mount, it's not what you should do, it's what He is doing in you and it's also what you will do if you'll cooperate with His Spirit. He gives you a new heart that He's conforming to the image of His Son. That's what we just talked about. And He also gives you His Spirit so you can actually, we can do these things. In the past, it's totally up to me and my will. I'm going to choose right. And as strong as my will is, that's how far I'm going to choose right. never affects my heart. It's just how much I can grip my teeth and do the right thing. Under the new covenant that we all now live in, the resources of heaven reside within me. The Holy Spirit, God himself, lives within me. And he moves me to keep the law. So when I'm tempted to whatever that happens to be, I actually have the inner resources to reject unrighteousness and to choose righteousness. It's not a... It's not my own strength anymore. As I cooperate with the Holy Spirit, I actually begin to do these things that we're reading. I don't have to grit my teeth and kind of wrench up my will. He's given me the ability by His Spirit to say, yes, I don't think God ever overrides our will. He never puts us on autopilot. We're not little marionettes and He's pulling the strings. He's looking for cooperation from us. He gives us His Spirit and He leads us and we can choose whether we're going to follow or not. So as we go through these things specifically over the next several weeks, but I want you to I don't want you to, again to, to 
be crushed. This is the stuff I have to do. We're challenged. I'm going to go make this happen on my own. And I absolutely don't want you to be dismissive and think he's just messing around. He's just throwing out some stuff and we can choose whether we obey it or not. What I want you to hear is this is what he's doing in you. He's at work. This is what he's doing. And this is what you will do if you'll cooperate with him. David looked at this last week. I'll pick it up real quick. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Nobody kept the law. Nobody followed the rules better than the Pharisees. They were the best of their time. They may have been the best ever. Seriously. They had the whole thing memorized. They built laws around laws to make sure they never broke the real ones. It's a massive amount of rules that they committed to memory. And from all accounts, they lived them out to a T. Jesus never criticizes them for a failure to keep the law. He criticizes them for plenty of other things, but never for a failure to follow the rules. And if what he's saying there is we've got to be better rule followers than them, then we're all done because we can't. The most we can hope for is to be as good as them, and for most of us, that's hopeless. That's where most of the people in Jesus' day live. They realize, I can't keep the rules as well as the Pharisees are telling me to keep the rules, so I'm just going to resign myself to this class of people, tax collectors and sinners. That's all I can be. I've, I've got to put food on the table. I can't memorize everything that they're asking me to memorize and follow it perfectly. I'm going to fail, so I'm not even going to try. And that's where we're going to be if we understand him to be saying, you've got to be better at keeping the rules than the Pharisees. They were letter of the law people. And what Jesus is trying to get them to see is that's not enough. Our righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees when we move from being letter of the law people to spirit of the law people. Second Corinthians 3.6, He, Jesus, has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. I cannot kill you and still wish you were dead. That's a heart issue for me. And God cares about that. The old covenant just dealt with my behavior. And the Pharisees, for whatever reason, had fallen into the trap of thinking that's all God cares about. That's why they were so scrupulous in their law keeping is they thought this is the way we make God happy. This is how we please Him. This is how we remain in right relationship with Him. And what Jesus is saying, no, it's heart first. Yes, he cares about your behavior, but your behavior comes from your heart, and we've got to get that taken care of. He calls them whitewashed tombs. You look great on the outside. You're dead on the inside. That's why he welcomes prostitutes and tax collectors who look awful on the outside, but who get it on the inside. I need grace. I've repented of my sins. I'm looking for a relationship. That type of thing is a completely different way of relating to God. And that's what he's doing here in the Sermon on the Mount. All of the things that we just read, those six, you have heard it was said, I would say to you, those are just examples of him pushing back the letter of the law to the spirit of the law. As we read through Matthew, there are multiple times where Jesus actually breaks the law. He does. It's not, I'm not, he does. He breaks the law, the letter of it. He never violates the intention of the law. He always maintains what the law was intended to do. And that's what we want. That's the kind of people... We want to be. We don't want to be people who say, well, I can't take the Lord's name in vain, so I'm not going to say, by God. I'm going to say, by gosh. And that's, that's the letter of the law thinking, that what God cares about are those three letters or these four letters. What he cares about is your heart. That's what he's looking at. He's not just looking at our technical execution around some of these things. And so as we, 
I want to look at, at a few practical things, but what I don't want you doing is I don't want you thinking in terms of behavior at all at this point. I'm going to give you some things to think about, but it's all heart stuff. As we run through Matthew, we're going to, we'll look at divorce. We're going to look at forgiveness. We're going to look at confrontation. We're going to look at all of these things that Jesus mentions. He circles back on all of them later in greater detail. And at that point, we'll look at behavior. And it will be the time to look at behavior. But today is not the day to look at behavior. We can't start there. We fall into this Pharisee's trap of just saying, well, how do I manage my behavior? The first thing is, where's my heart in this? What does my heart look like in this? Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your heart because it's the wellspring of life. It's what Jesus says in Matthew 15. Everything's coming out of here. And if here is good, then what comes out is going to be good. And if here is not good, then what comes out of here is not good, even if it looks good. That was the trap of the Pharisees. It looked good, but it still wasn't good because God is looking at our hearts. So I'm going to talk about a few things, and I want you just to ask ask the question, if you struggle in these areas, why do I struggle? That's a heart question. Why do I wrestle with these things? I don't want you thinking about how do I fix it. That's a behavior question. Let's start with why do I struggle with these things? Lust is an easy one. That's one that we try to manage that. We put filters um, on the Internet. We keep our head down. We're walking down the street. We don't go to the beach. Whatever it is that we do, we cut our cable. We do all of these things because for us, we think, well, lust, it's, it's their fault. It's all of them. They're causing me to lust. That's not what James says. James 1.14 says we sin. It's the evil desires in our own hearts. We're dragged away and enticed by the evil within us. And those things may be matches, but there's kindling in my heart that's being lit. And that's what I need to deal with. I need to deal with the kindling in my heart. We talked several years ago about this idea of not giving uh, any handholds. So I want to be a sheer face. And when temptation comes, I don't want it to have anything in my heart to grab onto. Jesus is speaking to one of the most modest cultures in the history of culture. And he's saying, you guys struggle with lust. We didn't just start struggling with lust when Al Gore invented the Internet. It's gone back way, it's way before that. And cutting that off is not going to fix it because it's in here. You can't, we can't external that thing out of us. What I need to ask is, if I struggle with lust, the question is, why? How come I do that? What is it in me that's seeing these women? Why does, what, what, is that, what is that triggering in me? What's the handhold in me? Oftentimes, it could be multiple things. If you struggle with lust, the que- I'm asking you, ask why. And I'll give you a few things that it could be, but it may not be. You need to ask yourself why. Possibly, people I talk it's discontent a lot of times. I'm not content with what God has given to me. I'm either single and I'm not content being single, or I'm married and I've become discontent with my spouse. And so then I start looking around. I'm upset that my spouse, she doesn't look like she did when she was 22, and I don't either. And so I start looking around and going, what's out there? It's discontentment. That's what lust grabs onto in me. Not good. Anger, that's the first one. This whole idea of how we treat other people. What is anger? If you're angry, my question to you is, why are you angry? And if you start naming people and you start naming circumstances, you've missed it. Those people might make you angry, but they make you angry because you've got anger in your heart. And they're just stirring it up. It's not traffic's fault and it's not your boss's fault. He might be a jerk, but that's not the answer for you. It's why. Oftentimes it's selfishness. I'm not getting my way. 
things aren't working the way I want them to work, and so I get angry about it. Another one, um, let me think how to, uh, if your ego is being something that uh, attacks your ego or your sense of self, if that kind of gets attacked, a lot of times we get angry. I've been coaching soccer for several years, and I've had a run of having the worst team in the league. I'm the common denominator by a long way. Like there's us, and then there's like 17 spaces, and there's next. And I remember when I first wrestled with that, these kids are nine years old. It's rec league soccer. You can't get less important than nine-year-old rec league soccer. But I would spend, I would stay up at night thinking about it. We play in this league where every kid has to play half the game. And so if your kids are great, that's great. When your kids aren't great, it's brutal because you have to put them out there. Like I'm the father, I'm a husband, I'm a pastor, I'm a Christian. I'm hoping kids get sick and don't come to our games. <laughs> Because then I don't have to play them. And that's better for everybody. I saw one of our guys limping, and I'm, yes. I don't think you should play. My mom says I can I don't think you should play today. I think it would be better if you just sit over here with me. I deal with people whose marriages are falling apart, who have massive financial difficulties, and the stuff that keeps me up is my nine-year-old soccer team. And I'm getting frustrated on Friday nights and Saturday mornings. Like, I'm thinking about it. I can feel it. Why? Because my ego, my sense of identity is being attacked. It's being compromised because we stink. And I think that's a reflection on me. And I'm wondering what do the other coaches think? And what do the parents think? And when people ask how the game, like all of that, that's a, that's a me issue. It's, not, it's, it's me. It's not the wise fault that they stack my team in some way. It's, I can come up with a thousand excuses. But the reason that frustrates me, it's my heart. And I need to look at that. So it could be if you struggle with anger, I would say, is there, a, is there a place in your life where your ego, and I mean that in a neutral sense, or maybe you like your sense of identity, you like that better, where those things are, are, are being threatened by something. Somebody's, uh, you're losing in some way. That can cause you to be angry. Lust, we talked about this idea of divorce. We'll talk about later, but the issue, heart issue, is distance from your spouse. That always precedes divorce. Why? Why is there distance between you and your spouse? You may legally never get a divorce, but there are all kinds of families, homes in our city where people are functionally divorced. Two have become one, have become two again. They're living under the same roof, living parallel lives because there's a distance there between husband and wife. If that's you, the question is, well, I'm not asking if you're ever going to get a divorce. That's not the question. The question is, why is there distance between you and your spouse? Sometimes it's resentment. Usually it's something small that just has never been taken care of. It's a small thing that's repeated over time. Oftentimes it's apathy. We just get used to each other. We start taking each other for granted. And so this space grows, and again, two have become one, have become two again. If that's where you are, the question again is, why? And then what are you going to do about it? I'm, guys, if you're a man and that's you, it's your responsibility, I believe. You've got to take the steps to close the gap. There's distance here. It's my responsibility. I tend to be passive-aggressive. I can't do that with her if there's a distance. I, it's my job. 
to take one or ten steps to close the gap. And the same thing would be true of you men if you're married and there's a distance between you. Initiate that conversation to figure out how to close it. But the first question you've got to ask is why? Why is that there? Are you manipulative? This whole idea of oaths. That gets down to is you, people can't trust you when you say yes or no. So you've got to say I swear, I pinky swear, or I promise, or I guarantee, or you can, whatever it is. We have to add all these qualifiers because nobody believes us otherwise. It's all, it's manipulation. It's verbal manipulation. That's all that is. And if that's you, the question, well, why? Why do you have to do that? Why can't you just say yes or no? How come you've got to add all of, why do you have to sell? And why do you have to cherry pick information and slant and spin? Why do you have to do all that? And don't say it's just part of your job. It's not. Oftentimes, it's because we don't trust the Lord. We don't trust God to be able to work this thing out, so we're going to help him along a little bit. What people don't know won't hurt them, and so we don't share certain things. Or, again, we spin and we sell and we slant. We do all of that to kind of... Our intentions may be good, but ultimately it's a lack of trust. I don't trust God to figure this, to work this thing out, so I'm going to help him along. The last one, eye for an eye, love for enemies, that really gets down. If you're a fair person... I would say, why? Why are you a fair person? Because God is not a fair God at all. Nothing about him is fair. If it's difficult for you when someone gets something they don't deserve, something good that they don't deserve, if that really kind of riles you up, that's a heart issue. God is gracious. He gives us good things that we don't deserve, and he's merciful. He withholds judgment that we do deserve. That's the way he treats us as his children. He's not fair at all. And if we're fair people, it could be there's something going on in your heart. And I would ask you why. Most likely you don't understand grace. We don't understand the grace that we've been shown. And so it's easy for us to, not, to then not show grace to others or be upset when grace is shown to others. Because grace is never, ever fair. That's why it's called grace. And if you struggle with that, this idea you treat people the way they treat you. Why? How come you do that? God doesn't treat us the way we treat him. So why do we treat others the way they treat us? Those are all heart things for you to begin to ask if you struggle with any of those areas. If you struggle with anger, if you struggle with lust, if you struggle with distance in your, particularly in your marriage, if you struggle with being verbally manipulative, if you struggle with being fair, and I mean, you want to be fair. If you struggle with that, my question to you is to begin to ask God why. What are the hooks in my heart that those temptations are kind of grabbing onto? What are the handholds that they're attaching themselves to? And let me deal with that first. And it may be that nothing changes behaviorally for a while, and that's fine. We live out of our hearts, and Jesus knows that, and that's why he said, I need your heart first. If I've got your heart, then the rest of you will follow. If I don't have your heart, then I don't have you at all. And your behavior is secondary at that point. And so we want to be people who aren't just, we're not concerned with the letter of the law. We're embracing the spirit of it. We're saying, I want to be perfect the way my father is perfect. I want to be conformed into the image of his son. And that, that's a heart thing first. That absolutely has external implications, but it begins in my heart. Saying, God, this is what you're doing in me, and I can trust you to do this work. And I'm going to cooperate with you in 
that work. I'm going to make choices by your spirit that move me in this direction. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your spirit that you do give to us. God, I thank you that you haven't left us to our own resources. And God, I thank you that you're not just concerned with behavior. There are times where it sure would be easy if all you cared about was what pot we cooked our food in and whether we washed our hands the right way. But that kind of stuff starts piling up and can be super burdensome over time. God, I thank you that what you're looking for are hearts that are yours. And that's, God, that's what we want. We we want our hearts to be yours. We want to cooperate with the work that you're doing within us to make us more like your son. So my prayer for any here today who are climbing a ladder, when they think about you, you're way up in the sky and they're climbing a ladder, God, I pray that they would know the freedom. Saying, I can't, the reason there is we can't climb, that's why you came down, is because we can't climb it. You came down to us because we can't climb up to you. God, I pray for any who are living under the delusion that they just need to be rehabilitated. God, they would recognize they need to be resurrected this morning. They don't have a good heart that needs to be made better. They have a dead heart that needs to be brought to life. And we thank you that you do that for us. God, I pray that you begin to speak to us about these conditions of our heart that lead us towards sinful behavior. You'd show us why. Why are we angry? Why are we lustful? Why are we manipulative? Show us those things. And then, God, once you show us those things, show us what to do about it. But begin in our hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close with ministry. You guys can stand. We'll have prayer teams up front. This is what I want from you. Um, A couple of things. Again.